The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Hey, hey, welcome to another edition of the Disability Law Show is set to go. Martin Willems is your guide, lawyer, ready to answer your questions. You can reach out to Martin and his team anytime. You know that number by now, one 855 There's no obligation just to pick up a phone and ask a couple questions. If something comes to mind while we're doing this, uh, this show this next hour and uh, that triggers a question in your mind, use that phone number. Send an email, help at disabilityrights.ca. May not be for you, maybe for a friend, colleague, family member who Who's dealing with an insurance company and getting some pushback or even worse, but just reach out to Martin and his team. I guarantee they have an answer and can set you in the uh, the right direction. Again, one 821 5900 The email's already coming in. Martin, we'll get to those in a bit, but the main topic, questions about disability policy provisions. A lot of people don't even know what those words mean, but we're going to get into that right now. Uh, so we'll start number one, notice periods. How about that? Do I have any recourse if my LTD application was submitted late? Is there some leeway there? What do you think? You know, that's a good question. The reason why we're having the discussion this morning is we get lots of emails coming in from people, but I think summarizing some of the general questions and obviously things that I think people don't really know about, these policies are contracts, and these contracts have rights and obligations and provisions. And if you don't work with it every day, you would look at this obligation or this provision, and you would think, well, goodness, I missed the 30-day deadline to submit notice of claim or a 90-day deadline to submit proof of claim. In other words, that you had to get all your documents to the insurance company. And then we see cases that are denied because the insurance company would say, you did not submit your claim within the contractual timelines, the notice provisions. And some people think that, oh, okay, well, this is a contract, so I don't have any recourse. It really depends on each circumstance. Think about if you have a disability claim, if you cannot work, you're not receiving any money, why on earth would you delay getting the application in? Usually, there is a good reason. It may be that the person didn't know that they had coverage, which has happened. It may be because they're receiving work-safe benefits, thinking that they may not be able to qualify or receive benefits from the insurance company because they're already receiving benefits from another source. So if you do miss the contractual provisions and the insurance company says, you don't have a claim now, we are denying you because you missed those deadlines, yes, quite often there is something that can be done. It really depends on your personal circumstance and the facts of your, of your situation. I've seen many cases, I've been consulted by many people who missed the contractual deadlines <laughs> and we were still able to assist them by pursuing a settlement through a legal claim. And the reason why I say that is the insurance company wrote the policy, right? They know these provisions. At the other end, you would have the insured, a layperson. They're simply working, doing their best, going off work, and then they miss some provisions or deadlines. They don't know what those provisions are because they don't have access to the policy. Our court system has recognized that there may be reasons why people miss these deadlines, and there are re- there is recourse people in those circumstances so if your claim is denied because you missed a deadline or if you know somebody a family member or a friend who missed a deadline and they speak to you please have them reach out to us because we can look at your personal circumstance we look at the policy we look at when you submitted your claim we look at the denial letter and we'll discuss with you 
your options so you can make an informed decision as to how to proceed. And we represent clients throughout Canada other than in Quebec. So if you have a question, please reach out to us. We offer free consultations. Martin is bang on with that one. And the number to do so, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, another question comes through about disability policy provisions, rehabilitation provisions. How about that? Will the insurer continue to pay me benefits or top me up if I'm participating in a rehab program? Such a good question. You know, many people will say to me, what is a rehabilitation program and should mm-hmm. I be doing it? So these contracts, the policies that we've discussed, Many of them will have rehabilitation programs provisions in them. What that means is while you are receiving long-term disability benefits and there is an indication that you may be able to get back to work if the insurance company funds some form of a treatment program for you, they may do so. And you're expected to participate in that. But if it involves, for example, a gradual return to work as well so you may be able to work 10 hours a week or 15 hours a week and then gradually increase these provisions generally provide that if you are engaged in an approved rehabilitation program and that means an approved rehabilitation program by the insurance company that they will continue to pay you benefits or top you up it may not be dollar for dollar as an offset considering how much money you're making doing the graduated return to work but there is an expectation that you will participate and the insurance company based on a certain calculation in other words it's a certain it's not you making two thousand dollars for ltd you're making a thousand dollars when you do your gradual return so they're going to pay you that extra thousand dollars there's a different calculation that is used and it depends on the language of each policy but the point that i'm making here is yes there is a there is an expectation that there will be a top-up and that they will continue to pay you as long as you participate in that rehabilitation program. The other thing that I should say on that point is the moment that you start to participate in it, the insurance company is going to expect that you get back to work. So this is not going to be something that's going to carry on for months and months. Again, I've seen lots of cases where people did participate in a approved rehabilitation program they started to gradually increase their hours to a point where they found that their condition plateaued or that it actually worsened and they went off again. And at that juncture, the insurance company denies the claim because they would say, we don't believe that you are totally disabled. You were able to do some work. We think that you're able to gradually increase. doesn't happen in all cases. Of course it doesn't. But in many of them, it does happen. And again, if that happens to you, don't expect or just assume that the insurance company is correct. If you find that you are engaged in a rehab program or a graduate return to work program and your condition worsens, speak to your doctor, get your doctor's input. If the doctor advises you to go off for work, no longer participate in a graduate return to work program and the insurance company then denies you, you know where to come. You call us and we'll discuss your claim with you. We're talking policy provisions when it comes to insurers. Uh, How about treatment provisions? Is the insurer obligated under the LTD policy to pay for treatment? Such a good question, and this is something that comes up regularly. So when you have an LTD claim that is being paid, the insurer's obligation under the terms of the policy is to pay you that benefit, provided that you continue to prove that you are disabled within the meaning of the policy. Go back to what we just discussed with the rehab program. If the insurance company feels 
that it will be beneficial to the insurance company to fund some treatment for you. For example, they may say, we're going to fund a 12-session psychotherapy or um, cognitive behavioral therapy with a psychologist. We'll do that because the expectation is it's going to make you work ready at the end of those sessions so that they don't have to continue to pay you long-term disability benefits. What I'm saying is, under the terms of the long-term disability policy, there are not, from what policies that I've seen at least, there are no provisions that would, in, that would force the insurance company to fund your treatment. The insurance company may fund your treatment if they feel it will benefit them. It may be where they may put you through some work-holding programs of kinesiology, they may fund some physiotherapy, or with mental health, as I said before, they may fund some treatment where you may be going to see a psychologist. With addiction issues, there have been times where I've seen the insurance company fund an in-treatment facility, which can be quite expensive. But again, the motivation there is for the insurer to pay that treatment because the cost of the treatment may be significantly less if they don't do it because the expectation is you're going to be receiving long-term disability benefits for an extended period of time which will cost them a lot more. So ultimately I don't believe that in the provisions the insurance company is obligated under the LTD at least policy to pay treatment but they may do so if they feel it will benefit them. And with that, we'll move on to another one we're talking about uh, on this particular uh, segment of, of the show, disability policy provisions. That was about uh, treatment provisions. Change of definition. We've heard this so many times on this show, Martin. What is commensurate income and how is it determined? Again, good question. So w- what we normally speak about is what is the difference between own occupation and any occupation? Own occupation, generally the first two years, you have to show you cannot perform the duties of your regular occupation. Then it changes to this any occupation phase. And it is confusing. I recognize that. The policies quite often would just say, if you are unable or you really have to prove that you cannot perform the essential duties of any occupation based on your education, your training, and your experience. Some policies may say also that it has to be something, a job, uh, an occupation, that would pay you a certain percentage of your pre-disability income. Right. It may say 50% or it may say 70%. If the policy is silent on that, if there is no percentage given, then this question comes up. What is commensurate? What does that mean? Commensurate in my mind means similar to, but it doesn't necessarily be, it's not necessarily looked at that way by insurers or maybe even the courts. So when an insurance company looks at the any occupation phase, depending on the provisions with respect to calculations for LTD, they generally look at is there an occupation out there that you could perform that would pay you roughly the same amount as your long-term disability benefit. So if your LTD is 65% of your pre-disability income, they're going to look at is there a job out there in the any occupation phase that you could perform based on your education training experience that would pay you that percentage. But again, if they deny you based on that, have us look at the policy because we may say to you, look, this is, does not accord with the language of the policy. This is not a commensurate income. Yes, the insurance company makes that decision, but ultimately they may not be correct. And that's why you would want to contact us. 
We'll have one more of these points in a moment, but we got to take a short break, get back with more. You'll want to reach out to, uh, to Martin. In the meantime, do so. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, welcome back. Disability Law Show. Martin Willems is your guy handling all the heavy lifting every show available to you. one 821 5900 Sometimes you'll, uh, you'll glean quite a bit from this show, get some good information, but you'll want to have more of a private, lengthy conversation. That's for the phone number right there. Or email as well, help at disabilityrights.ca. Or another way to uh, ask your questions anonymously through your tablet, desktop, or laptop, whatever you got. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. You can... Uh, you can use that for the last uh, bit of the previous segment uh, martin we were talking questions about disability policy notice periods rehab provisions treatment provisions uh the change of definition with commensurate income and how about uh, appropriate treatment who decides whether treatment is appropriate and what the treatment is working or not working what do you think this is such a good question and you know i i find it depends on the policy of course and it depends on the insurance company but Appropriate treatment is a controversial subject. Mm-hmm. Appropriate treatment and who decides. So the insurance company may, this is how it generally works, the insurance company may approve your claim, they may get updates from your doctors, and then they may have the file reviewed by one of their health partners, which would, it's just generally a nice term to say, this is one of our own in-house doctors, we're going to have the doctor review the claim, and then we're going to have that doctor comment on whether the treatment that you are receiving is appropriate for your condition. Go back to the wording of the policy. Most policies would provide that you have to be engaged in appropriate treatment. There may be a defined term, which is called, which may say appropriate treatment program. And it will also say if it is, in our opinion, appropriate for the condition that you have. But then the question becomes, how do they decide that? Because they often don't have any input from the family doctor or the treatment provider. They may just say, okay, well, we're looking at your clinical records. We've now had one of our doctors review the claim, and that doctor may not have even met you, spoken to you, assessed you, had any input whatsoever. Yet they're in a position to say, we don't think you're appropriately treated. So it is a controversial topic. I would always say to clients or to people phoning us, Follow your own doctor's treatment advice. The question here is also, what if the treatment isn't working? Well, that is a relevant question. If you've mm-hmm. been on a certain medication for a year, let's say it's an antidepressant, and there are no side effects, but you're also not getting better, the question does become, what is going to happen now? If it's not working, what other medications are available? What other treatments are available? As long as you are in discussion with your doctors, be it your family doctor, be it the psychiatrist or be it some other form, other form of a specialist, speak to them regularly. Update your doctors as to what is working and what is not working. I've seen cases where people have significant side effects or they have even allergies to specific medications, specifically with antidepressants, where it may have significant side effects. If that is the case, make sure that your doctor knows that that if the insurance company then looks at this and says, you should be doing this medication, or you should be trying this treatment, 
Your doctor can then be in a position to write a letter and advise the insurance company why your treatment is appropriate because you've tried all these other avenues. Right. But the key is to regularly see the doctor and be in communication. Have an open c- channel of communication with your, fa- with your treatment providers so that you can rebut the insurance company's position if they do say to you, this is not appropriate for your condition. And ultimately, if your claim is denied, because I have seen this many times, and most specifically when people do appeals, the insurance company come back and say, well, we disagree. We don't think that your, your treatment is appropriate. And again, <laughs> who makes you this decision maker? You've never even met the person. So if that happens, reach out to us. We'll discuss this with you. And quite often we do get retained to fight that fight on behalf of the person so that they can focus on their treatment. And as I've said, we represent clients throughout Canada other than Quebec. Let's get to our first email. It says, uh, guys, I've been advised to pose my question here. Good. I was on short-term disability receiving my full salary, but they're switching me over to long-term, and now it'll be 50% of my salary, according to the insurer. I uh, wanted to double my rights. I uh, wanted to du- double my rights on this if capable to get more. I mean, can they can they bump it up? How do they do that, Martin? Can they? Question. So first things first, you go to the policy. You want to see whether the calculation is correct. Did the insurance company, so how this works is you look at the person's pre-disability income in the policy, it will define what calculation is used to determine what the long-term disability benefit is. Some people will have it as 50% of their pre-disability income. That's fairly low, considering it's an LTD uh, benefit. Many will be 60% of the first 4,000 and then stagger down, or others may just be 67% of the entire amount. So first things first, we want to know, did the insurance company use the right calculation with respect to the LTD benefit amount? Um, The person is on short-term disability now going on to long-term disability, so that's just starting out. It may be too early to qualify for CPP disability, but all that will happen is the insurance company likely will just be able to deduct it. Other sources of income, you may want to look into your provincial government whether there are any benefits available. Like in BC, you may have business with disability. I believe in Alberta, there's something called AISH, where you can check into are there other sources of income available to you. But remember, it is a policy. It provides a certain income. The fact that you're not able to work, that leads you to the long-term disability. If you do start looking at other sources or if you're looking at other work, you're venturing into an area where the insurance company may look at whether they're going to continue to pay LTD if you're starting to explore whether there are other avenues of income, in other words, through work as opposed to just government incomes or other sources of income. But generally, it would just be the LTD benefit and some provincial plans that may provide further benefits to you. If your benefit is taxable, that's one other thing that you could do is look at the disability tax credit to see if you could qualify for that to reduce your taxable in, uh, your taxable consequences. There's a lot to uh, to get through there. Again, if you want to reach out to Martin for more clarity on that, you can, no problem, 1-855-821-5900. I think we got time to at least get into another email here before we uh, we take a break. It says, guys, when I've worked due to having issues with both my hands and my elbow, I got surgery and my function in my hands were restored. The insurer denied my claim after the surgery. They said their doctor believes I am no longer disabled. The only referred to my hand surgeries, however... 
My elbow condition has worsened. My surgeon said there is no point to surgery as this is one of those injuries that is stubborn uh, to heal and will just take time. I have a heavy-duty labor job and cannot work, so what should I do? This is something that I see every now and again, where a person has various different conditions and they then get treatment. It may be medication that starts to improve the one condition, or in this case, it is surgery that seems to have fixed the hand issue, but then the elbow issue is still there. And you have to look at everything. Why is the person unable to work? And are they unable to work? If the elbow condition worsened, and this is a heavy-duty labor job, I would venture to say that this person needs to use their hands, their arms, to perform their duties, right? It's heavy-duty labor. And if your elbow is in such a condition that you cannot use your arm or your hand, and the elbow condition is worsening, it's a very difficult thing to comprehend how then it can be said that you can perform the duties of a heavy-duty labor job. So the point that I'm making is when insurance companies refer the files to the internal doctors because yes. there may be improvement in one area, that's quite often where the focus lies, but they don't lo- even look at the others. I will speak about another uh, others that I have seen where the person may have a physical condition, the mental health is also quite disabling. The physical condition will improve. They have it assessed by the internal health partner, and that person says, oh yes, now from a physical standpoint, the restrictions and limitations have now improved. They could probably do their labor job, but nobody looks at the mental health component. That is still disabling. So if that happens, reach out to us, because you definitely still have a claim, and that claim should be pursued. Do not let it that the insurance company is not correct on that point. And reaching out again, guys, the email is help at disabilityrights.ca, phone number 1-855-821-5900. says right here, Martin, my question is if my employer is allowed to make me return as a customer service agent when my previous title was an engineer. That is very strange and odd. Yeah, no kidding. uh, I handle LTD cases and a lot of lawyers in my firm handle long-term disability and other insurance cases. But fortunately, we also have an employment contingent. Lawyers who represent employees with respect to employment questions. This is one question that I think should be posed to one of the employment lawyers in my firm. So please reach out to us and set up a consultation because we will definitely be able to help you with this question. In terms of an LTD, because I think there is a bit of a segue here. Yeah. Remember what I spoke about when we commensurate occupation at the change of definition? If you were working as an engineer and you're now at the change of definition and the employer is saying, well, or the, the insurer rather, is saying that you can now go work as a customer service agent, firstly, do you have the education training experience to do that? And secondly, and I think this is a big one, will it pay you a commensurate wage? In other words, will it pay you roughly the same as your pre-disability income, a percentage of it, rather the 60 to 75%? And if not... Also, do you have the restrictions and limitations that will allow you to work in a position like this? But just looking at it now, I'm sure that that will not be the case. If you were to be at the change of definition and the insurance company would say, go work as a customer service agent when you were doing the work of an engineer, your occupation was that of an engineer, I'm fairly confident to say that that's not going to be a commensurate wage. And again, do not accept that the insurance company is correct on that point. Reach out to us so we can review it with you.
Okay, we've got time for one more email, Martin, before we take a short break. Here it says, guys, my sister has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder type 2. This is a recent diagnosis. She was working as a marketing manager with a firm for 10 years, but was then recruited to work with her current employer. She was diagnosed with depression many years ago and was stable on antidepressants, managing to work full-time and not having any relapses. After she joined the new firm, her behavioral became uh, her behavior became erratic. She would have very, very high highs and very low lows. She was diagnosed in December of 2022. She's been advised to stop working by the psychiatrist and submitted a claim for LTD. The LTD insurer denied the claim, saying that as she's been taking medication for depression, her condition is pre-existing. The psychiatrist was clear in his communications that the disabling condition is not depression, but bipolar disorder. She remains unable to work and is not stable. How can we help her? Remarkably, I have seen this particular circumstance before and not only once, if you can believe it. So, over the years, I've seen lots of pre-existing condition denials. And when, it beca- when it, you're dealing with a mental health, it becomes messy. Because bipolar disorder type 2, like we were saying here, high highs, low lows. Low lows means the person's quite depressed, high highs, they're quite erratic in their behavior. But it is a separate diagnosis. So what the insurance company has done here is they've latched onto the fact that the sister has been using antidepressants, has been taking antidepressants to keep her stable. She now has an entirely new diagnosis. The psychiatrist has confirmed this, yet the insurance company is looking at the prescription of medication for the depression to use that as a basis for a denial. That is not correct in my mind. I would want to look at the facts here, but we know pre-existing conditions would say if it is related to a condition that you were treated before. If it is not related to it, and it doesn't seem to be, it's an entirely new diagnosis. The psychiatrist supports this claim. Reach out to us. I wouldn't even try to appeal this uh, decision because clearly the insurance company didn't do what they were supposed to do in objectively and reasonably adjudicate this claim. We will be able to assess because this is, in my mind, from what I can see, not a pre-existing condition as that term is defined in the policy. With that short break, one more uh, bit to go, so we'll get to some more emails. Uh, in the meantime, help at disabilityrights.ca. And phone number, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. We continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. This is the Disability Law Show. That's right. You want to reach out to Martin Willems anytime. Lawyer, Sanfiru Tamarkin, LLP. Easy enough. one 855 Help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, next email up here. Martin says, uh, let me scroll down to his guys have approved i was approved for my de- change of definition date may 2024 and i don't understand why i'm currently trying to get better and get back to work in the next few months i've been off work since october 2021 the ltd company said that they will send the approval to my employer i'm scared that my employer will now say that i have a poor prognosis for a return to my own occupation and not hold my position for me or even fire me what do you think well <laughs> It's interesting, we had a similar question, not one of a similar question, but a question last week which was quite the opposite of what we normally get. Yeah. So this person has been approved um, beyond the change of definition, and that only happens in May of 2024, so we're a year away from now. It is surprising, you don't generally see this. Um, they're wondering why the insurance company did this. Clearly, 
there must be something in the medical documentation that leads the insurance company to think that you are disabled from working in another occupation as well. So uh, it's a difficult one to answer uh, because the concern here as well is what's going to happen with the employer. I suppose it's something that you could discuss with the insurance company, what criteria that they use. You mm. tell them that you acknowledge that at this point you are still disabled from performing your duties. It may be a bit premature to approve you beyond the change of definition, which is a year away, because there's another year where you can engage in treatment. The person says that they are trying to get better, which I'm not sure if that actually means that they are getting better, and get back to work in the next few months. I can say this to you, though. If you do get back to work in the next few months, I don't see, obviously, how the insurance company will abide by their decision to approve you beyond the change of definition. So maybe have a discussion with your doctor, maybe have a discussion with the insurance company as well, but focus on your treatment. Focus on taking a day by day to get better because it may be that you do get to a point where you can go back to work and it may happen that if you do work, it may be a premature return to work and you may go off again. So don't be hasty in telling them that you're not disabled any longer. Take it day by day and most importantly, have a discussion with your doctor and follow your doctor's treatment advice. If the doctor is approving a graduated return to work, when that moment comes, follow through with that advice. Take it slow. If you're able to do it, great, carry on. But if you find yeah. that your symptoms worsen, make sure that you keep your doctor um, updated with that so that your doctor can advise you as to how to proceed. The fact that they approved you to May of 2024 at the change of definition, again, you don't generally see that. And that tells me that there's something in your file where the insurance company feels, and you don't really see this, that they don't think you're going to go back to work, not just in your own occupation, but another occupation as well. So maybe have a discussion with your doctor, what information was submitted, and what is your doctor's opinion, and go from there. Good advice, my friend. We've got a couple more emails here as we get through. Uh, Martin, I'm 35 years of age. Last year, a doctor did sleep study, suggested to me using a PAP machine for sleep apnea. I was not using this machine as I was unaware of the implications slash dangers of using that machine. Now I have blood pressure, which was detected before a few months ago. Also have diabetes and feeling depression and anxiety, memory loss problems. Now the doctor has again suggested to use sleep apnea machine, and I've started to use it before a few days, but probably still persists. Can I claim disability benefits? Please advise. I'm on contract position since the last two years in a private company. We have uh, we have an insurance company. What do you think? Okay. Uh, good question. There's clearly various things on the go here. There's sounds like a high blood pressure issue. There is diabetes. There's depression and anxiety. And then the fact that a CPAP machine was suggested tells me that there is sleep apnea. So yeah. various comorbidities, various conditions at play. When you look at a disability claim, the focus always is functional impairment. Yes, the diagnoses are important. And yeah, you've got a bunch of them. But what are the restrictions and limitations? The person alludes to that by speaking about having memory loss issues, probably issues with concentration and focus. I don't know what the occupation is. But can they claim disability benefits? And we should advise, the very first thing that you're going to do is you're going to go to your doctor and have a discussion with your doctor as to what is the doctor's opinion. Yeah. If you have these various things, how does the diabetes play into this? How does the high blood pressure play into this? CPAP, sleep apnea, so obviously you've got 
issues for sleeping as well that may lead to fatigue depression anxiety leads to memory problems cognition problems focus problems um, and other issues so sounds like there are a bunch of things on the go the doctor will be in a good position to advise you whether you should carry on working or whether you should explore applying for disability benefits um, explain to your doctor what your position is the business says that they have a contract position with a company a private company and they have insurance so the insurance is there if you cannot work yes these are conditions that people do apply for when uh, I mean with respect to disability benefits mental health specifically we have seen lots and lots and lots and in on an increasing level cases where people apply because of their mental health based on anxiety depression and other mental health issues they cannot work so have the discussion with the doctor and if the doctor supports that you go off work yes do apply make sure that the doctor in the application document the attending physician statement identifies the diagnosis but more importantly the restrictions and limitations your symptoms the functional impairments because that will allow the insurance company to properly adjudicate the claim we would hope and if they don't you know where to come we can then look at if there is a denial which I hope there isn't but if there is we will discuss it with you and with that, we'll get to that uh, last break. We've got a few more emails to get through. Appreciate you bringing them all in. And if we don't get to it this show, we'll get to a future one for sure. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. You want to leapfrog that, go right to a phone call with Martin and his team. Here is that number, one 821 5900 More Disability Law Show is on the way. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. We are back. A few minutes to go. Disability Law Show. Martin Willems is here. Lawyer with Sam Firu to market LLP. You want to check it out. The most positively reviewed law firm in the country. I tell you true. You want to reach out to Martin. Here's the phone number. one 821 Have a chat in your own time or an email if you prefer that and you can use of course your smartphone tablet whatever to reach out at help at uh, disabilityrights.ca or my disabilityquestions.com uh short and sweet email here martin we'll get to it right now how long do you have to be off work to claim ltd okay uh it's an interesting question it's a good one um when you have a disability policy which your employer has it sounds like there's something called an elimination period Mm-hmm. or a qualifying period. One of those two terms will be used. It normally refers to a time frame where you could qualify for short-term disability benefits, or if your, in- your employer doesn't have short-term, it may be that you're expected to apply for medical employment insurance, medical EI. In other cases, where short-term may be extended, it may be that, and I've seen ones, where short-term is six months, where short-term is even a year. Mm. So... In order to qualify for long-term disability benefits, you look at the language of your policy. Generally, the policy will say that in order to qualify for those first two years, the own occupation period, if it is a a two-year program Mm -hmm. or timeline, it would say that you have to show that you, during the qualifying period and then the two years that follow, you're disabled from performing the duties of your own occupation. So the qualifying period is the timeline which you first need to satisfy before you get to LTD, the LTD timeline. And for most people, it would be 119 days, four months or three months at times. Hmm. Okay. So you have to qualify for that period, 
and then you get to long-term disability. So how long do you have to be off work? It's not just being off work, it is proving that you have been continuously disabled within the meaning of the long-term disability policy from performing the essential duties of your own occupation for the qualifying period. In other words, those first three or four months or six months or even a year before you get the LTD. So look at the language of your policy. That will tell you what the qualifying or elimination period is. Next email says, Martin, love the show. Appreciate it. Been on LTD for one year. My employer is changing insurance providers. We've had this question before. I love it. Will this affect my LTD claim? Also, if the insurance company is stating that I have to attend a second IME, independent medical examination, with another psychiatrist, is that right? I already attended an IME, an IME before. Okay, so that's a double whammy. The first one, <laughs> um, do you... So been on LTD for one year. During the time frame that this person has been on long-term disability, the employer is changing insurance providers. So it may be with insurance company A, who is now paying benefits, but the employer is now changing to insurance company B. Will that affect this person's entitlement of Mm -hmm. LTD with insurance company A? No, it should not. Because your claim vested while you had coverage with insurer A. The fact that your employer has changed insurance providers should not affect the current claim that you have with insurance company A because your claim vested, that's when the coverage was in place. If you did go back to work ultimately and you were successful and then went off work again, then the question becomes, is it insurer A or is it insurer B? Because it depends on how long you go back to work for. So be very careful if when you do apply for LTD benefits, if you did go back to work, depends on how long. If it may have been a six-month period or less, it may be with insurer A. If it is longer, then it may be with the new insurance company. But we're not there yet. It's just something to think about. If you did go back to work and you went off again, be careful. Speak to HR. Who should you apply to? And if they deny, of course, you reach out to us. Other question. Do you have to attend a second IME with yeah. another psychiatrist? This is an interesting question. I'm going to assume, based on the way this question is phrased, that another psychiatrist means that you've already seen a psychiatrist. Insurance companies do have the right, based on the insurance, uh, based on the provisions and the policy, to have you assessed by a doctor of their choice. Okay. But it has to be reasonable. So if you attended an independent medical examination with a psychiatrist of the insurance company's choice, that psychiatrist then provided an opinion to the insurance company. Mm-hmm, yeah. It's only been a year, right? So it sounds like it was fairly recent. If the insurance company is now sending you to go to another psychiatrist, I'll have an issue with that because in my mind, that's doctor shopping. So I wouldn't say that it's necessary to go see another one. Obviously, I want to know the exact circumstances. If you had seen, if you've got various things on the go, you may have seen a chronic pain specialist, and now you're going to be seeing a, another doctor, that is a different situation, right? If it's a different specialty, that's something completely different. But if it is just a second psychiatrist because they didn't like the opinion of the first psychiatrist, uh-uh, yeah. that should not be happening. So reach out to us and we can just give us more information so I can see whether this, in fact, is what we've just described. It's a second psychiatrist. Why are they doing that? Because they now have the opinion of the first one. Um, they did exercise their right. They shouldn't be able to continue to do this on their ongoing basis. Insurance companies do say, though, that they have the right to when they think it's necessary. So if you had been on claim for 10 years, if they sent you 
to an independent IME now and again, maybe that's a different circumstance. But you've only been on claim for a one year and they already want to send you a second one, I don't think that's reasonable. But it depends on your circumstances. Again, reach out uh, when we're done here for a phone call and a more in-depth conversation with Martin and his uh, his crew, for sure. But thanks for the email anyway. It's uh, 1-855-821-5900. Rolling on down the list of emails here, pal. We're getting to a lot today. It's good. Uh, Martin, I am concerned that my wife's LTD insurer is conducting surveillance of her. She has severe anxiety and does not leave the house often. She tells me that she believes that there has been someone sitting outside our house in a car. When she went to see her psychologist, uh, her sister drove her, she said the car followed them. I'm not sure if this is a case, but uh, I'm wondering whether insurers do conduct surveillance, and if so, to what extent can they intrude on one's privacy? Okay, so this is another uh, uh, sensitive topic, obviously, and a controversial one. Do insurance companies conduct surveillance? Yes, they do. Do they conduct surveillance in each and every case? No, they don't. But they can. Um, Sitting outside the house, conducting surveillance, following people around. Insurance companies do do that. Um, Can they bug your telephone? No, they cannot. Can they hack your emails? No, they cannot. Those are not things that they do. But these days, online surveillance is a huge thing um, because, frankly, social media is a goldmine for insurance companies. So they do do a lot of that. But physical surveillance, yes, they do. I have... I'm representing people at the moment who have had their cases denied because insurance companies conducted surveillance and then used the surveillance to deny the claim. In other words, what they saw in the surveillance, they would say, is not consistent with what the person was reporting was there or were their restrictions and limitations. If you feel threatened because somebody is outside your house or you're feeling that you're being followed, by all means, you can reach out to the authorities and report that. But in a general sense, yes, insurance companies at times conduct surveillance and they can do that but they cannot make you feel threatened I think and they cannot intrude in your privacy to the extent that I mentioned before be careful what you put on social media I say this every time because it can be misconstrued quite often and surveillance is a powerful tool right a visual is a powerful thing it may be that you had a good day when you were displaying more activity than what you're normally capable of but the moment that is on surveillance the insurance companies will try and use that to say that your claim is not as maybe severe and you are not as disabled as you have represented. So be careful of that. Plus, I mean, you know, they're they're paying for this. We know how much insurance companies love spending their own money. They're going to want to get something out of it, right? Definitely. If you're going to be paying for surveillance, the expectation is that there's going to be something there. And the reason why they do that ultimately is because they have a suspicion that there is something there. So when there's surveillance, I've seen cases tonight lots of times because of it. But but we'll be able to help there. And that will do it for another show. Thank you so much for all your email contributions. It's uh, it's awesome to have it uh, read out every show. Keep sending them along to Martin and his team. We'll get to it on a future show. And you can uh, skip over that and make that phone call if you've realized you want to have a conversation for your own matter with Martin and his team. one 821 5900 That email address every week is help at disabilityrights.ca. And we'll catch you next time in the Disability Law Show. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you so much for listening. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the Guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.